This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speaker is featured on this message. Well, uh, I want to introduce, we have a, uh, a, a guest preacher today. He's really a friend. This is the third time he's uh, preached it in our congregation. So many of you may know uh, Bob Coughlin already. Uh, Bob was the one who led the Worship God conference that we had here this week, Wednesday, uh, through yesterday, noon, through Saturday. So uh, let me uh, interrupt this introduction of Bob briefly to thank you as a church because so many of you gave your time and you served and some some of you took off work to serve back doing tech. Uh, to serve playing instruments and singing, or just to attend the conference to help greeting people here every night, uh, uh, food, all kinds of stuff. So this was really a church effort, and uh, I just want to thank the whole church for all that you did. And, and those of you who couldn't come or didn't participate, many of you have been praying, especially on the prayer team, been praying for weeks. And So just know that your prayers, if you're on the prayer team or if you've just been praying, just know those prayers were answered. And God met us in a wonderful way as people came from all, all kinds of places, and the Lord really met us. And uh, Bob led the entire uh, time, and uh, it's such a joy to have him stay over. I'll let you introduce your family. He's got some family members here, but to bring uh, his family stay over as well. Um, to be with us to preach God's word today. Um, Bob serves as a local church pastor on a staff. He's on a team, a pastoral team uh, at Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And he also uh, serves as the director of um, Sovereign Grace Music. And uh, uh, one of the primary things he gives himself to these days is training and equipping uh, worship leaders, also, you know, musicians, singers, and uh, but he's very much giving himself to training people who lead in gathered worship, what we're doing here this morning. And uh, he's written a couple of books, uh, Worship Matters and True Worshipers. And, and to point that out, because really the Lord has taken those, uh, Worship Matters in particular has been translated into a number of different languages, and those have been tools that have been used by God's grace to train and equip worship leaders uh, all over the world, uh, honestly, all over the world. And uh, so the Lord has taken um, Bob's own knowledge of the Lord, his own experience in the local church, his own uh, experience of worshiping with others, and uh, given him an opportunity to equip really a lot of people. Uh, Bob's not just a guest speaker. He wasn't just like a conference guy, so let's bring him in. But Bob's a dear friend. Uh, Bob and uh, I met in 1990. Some of you weren't even born then. Uh, and uh, so we were, we've known each other since then and have been friends since then. We often only see each other and have a meal or something once a year, but it's one of those friendships where it's just like once a year, but we, I still feel so close to you and count you a dear friend, uh, Bob, and Julie as well. Ginger feels the same way about uh, both you guys. Um, and uh, so thank you for sticking over uh, the weekend and, and uh, preaching today. And I just want to say something. I said this at the conference. Just one thing I wanted to thank Bob for and honor him really about and, and recognize the grace of God in his life. As we've known each other 28 years, we're both aging. Um, but in the 28 years I've known you, uh, as you grow older, here's what I've observed in you. Your love for Christ deepens and your passion uh, your expressive passion and your just inner heart uh, for the worship of the Lord, the corporate worship of the Lord in particular, 
uh, grows. And I just want to really emulate your example, Bob. I don't want to grow, I know none of you do, I don't want to grow and be the old, crusty, cynical uh, person who's just pointing out everything that's wrong. I want to be the person that grows to love Jesus more and, and gathers with his people to worship exuberantly. So thanks for setting an example in that, and thanks for your friendship, and let's bring the word. Let's welcome Bob. It's, it's great to be commended for, like, growing in passion for, like, a Savior who is like no other. Um, if, we, if we're not growing in our passion, we're just, we just don't know him. Just don't know him. But we do know him, and that's what makes it such a joy to get to know him better. Thank you, Craig. I am here with... Uh, that was very meaningful. Um, and I uh, love the fact you have two meetings, so I get to hear it twice. And just, uh, <laughs> I want to echo, before I talk about my family, I want to echo just uh, Craig's gratefulness f- uh, to you as a church, for those of you who are able to serve at the conference. Uh, one of the reasons we always do so, uh, the Worship of God conference in Sovereign Grace churches is because the church is part of what people come to see. It's not just a conference. We're not just putting on a production. It's the people. It's the lives of people who have walked this out faithfully for years and continue to do so. So thank you so much. I am here with um, two of my daughters and my beautiful bride, uh, Mackenzie, who is um, married a year now and uh, sings on a number of her albums. Brittany, who uh, serves me incredibly and has done so for seven years and my wife of 42 years this month, or next month, and uh, who serves me more incredibly. And you've done it for most of my life, so thank you. So it's great to have them here. Uh, As Craig mentioned, Grace Church is part of a family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches, and uh, I've been a part of that for 37 years. And if you're new, kind of think, ah, what's... And I actually, I met two new people this morning, just they were both this first time here. And uh, Sovereign Grace Churches is a denomination, but it's a family of churches, about 80-some churches, uh, who share a common mission, a common values, statement of faith, commitment to grow in relationship. And this is not like a ministerial associate uh, relationship. Um, you know, I'm not doing the conference tour and the circuit, and I need some place to speak. We really love each other, and we, we love each other because we love the same things. We love Jesus Christ, and we love his word, and um, we are passionate that more people know uh, about Jesus and his word. So I just want you to know that. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 130. As you can see on the screen, the message is entitled, With You, There is Forgiveness. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I do want to express my... Uh, sorrow for what you as church have been through, um, losing Ken and the family, uh, your sorrow. Uh, I pray that this morning is encouragement to you and to all those who have been affected. The longer we're Christians, there is an increasing danger that we become overly familiar with forgiveness. That that for forgiveness is just one of those things that you know we check in with when we're feeling bad. When the storms of life are pounding down on us, when sorrows are overwhelming us, when sickness is debilitating us, forgiveness can fade from our view. 
It can seem very distant and irrelevant. At the same time, there are Christians who struggle, continue to struggle, even after years, decades, with guilt, condemnation, shame for certain sins. Even after knowing, they know that Jesus came to die on the cross, take their guilt, take their condemnation on himself, but they don't live in the good of that. They don't experience that. They don't feel forgiven. They just feel guilty to some degree all the time. This morning, we want to talk about how to deal with guilt. That weight, that burden, that that bad feeling that just doesn't go away. And also see why it's so important that we do deal with our guilt and why it matters so much and why it should make such a difference in our lives. Now, when I was preparing for this message, I, I, I wanted to find out, you know, what did other people say? So I went to the Internet, which is always a source of reliable information, and I, I looked up guilt, you know, how to deal with guilt. So I, I found something on the Huffington Post, which I'm going to share with you, just to, so we can contrast what the world says versus what God says. Six ways to lighten the weight of your guilt was the name of the uh, article. And here they are. One, indulge in a good laugh. Studies have shown that giggling, (laughs) see, you're already experiencing, you probably feel less guilty right now. (laughs) Giggling releases endorphins and makes us feel giddy, making it the perfect antidote to the weight of guilt. Two, toss it out. Scribble it on a piece of paper, whatever you're feeling guilty about, and just throw it away, and it'll all be gone. Three, talk it out. Just say what you're feeling. Four, show a little kindness to others, and especially to yourself, because none of us are very kind to ourselves. None of us justify what we do. Five, tackle your tasks. Just do it. Six, channel your feelings into something positive. This is what they say. Adopting an optimistic mentality can also boost your mood, making you feel happier and lighter overall. All it takes is a little shift in your outlook. I read that, I thought, that is such a lie! Changing the way you feel about guilt does not take just a little shift in your outlook. It takes a massive shift in your outlook because we can't, so often we can't get beyond our perspective, the way we think about things, the way we see things. It takes a massive shift. And praise God, the Bible always gives us a massive shift in our outlook. Because this is life from God's perspective. And that's where we find how to deal with guilt. In Psalm 130, that's what we're going to see. Psalm 130 is one of the 15 songs of ascent. Psalm 120 to 134. Each one of them begins with a song of ascents. These were most likely psalms that God's people recited as they made one of the three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. It was on uh, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And if you don't know anything about those, you can read Deuteronomy 16, and that will tell you all about those. Families gathered all their belongings and animals and stuff together, and they traveled to Jerusalem to worship God together and celebrate his kindness and his goodness to them. And they would recite these psalms as, as they went on their way. And Psalm 130 is five before the last one. And you can imagine that as they were getting closer to the temple, to David's city, they were thinking, oh, wow, we're going to appear before God. What's that going to be like? 
So the psalmist is writing what it might be like. It teaches, the psalm teaches us a way, God's way of lightening our guilt, lightening the load of our guilt. And if I was to sum up the idea of the psalm, it might be something like this. Those whose sins are fully forgiven can look forward to the day when sin itself will be no more. That's a happy thought. Those who are, whose sins are fully forgiven can look forward to the day when sin itself is no more. We don't want to assume forgiveness, and we don't want to fail to enjoy it, to live in the good of it. Because when we do either, we rob ourselves of the greatest means of joy, assurance, and transformation that God has provided for those he loves. You want joy? Know what it means to be forgiven. You want assurance? Know what it means to be forgiven. You want transformation? You want to change? You want to overcome in your Christian life? Know what it means to be forgiven. So let's dig in. I'm going to read Psalm 130 to us. This is the Word of God. It is His very words. It does not change. It does not fail. It tells us what He thinks, who He is, and what He's done. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we ask, based on the merits of Jesus Christ, we come with boldness and ask that you would help me to present your word faithfully and clearly. And help us to hear diligently and respond in such a way that brings you glory through the power and name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to divide the psalm into four sections. Each one begins with a C. I like, what is that called when it all begins the same letter? Alliteration. I I love alliteration. (laughs) I don't always use it, but today I am. Because uh, it helps us understand the flow of the psalm. First, we're going to look at the psalmist's condition. Verses 1 and 2. Where's he at? What's going on? Okay, we, we open the psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Those of us who are discerning know immediately this is not a celebration song. This is not a song of rejoicing. This is not a song of victory, triumph. This is... This is a lament. It's actually a confession song. He's, he's not doing well. He's not, he's not doing well at all. He's, he's in the valley. He's in the pits. 
Why is he so down? Why, what are his depths? Well, there's been some discussions whether the Psalms are constructed the way they are with a purpose. I believe they are, that we can learn about a Psalm from the Psalms around it. And right before this Psalm, we have <coughs> a Psalm that begins like this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame. This guy's got some enemies. Israel has some enemies. He's feeling afflicted. He's feeling attacked. That would certainly be a reason to say, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. So we're not sure when it starts why he's saying this. But he is down. And so he cries out in verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Notice where he goes in the depths. Think about where you go in the depths. When you're feeling down, when you're, when you're feeling bad, where, where do you go? You know, I remember at one point in my life, I would go to a bowl of cereal. That was my, like, comfort food. It just always made me happier. I don't know why some of us go shopping. Some of us, uh, you know, go to the mall. Some of, some of us uh, read a book. You know where this psalmist goes? He goes to the Lord. He says, I'm going to the Lord. He doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't check out. He doesn't get all introspective. He goes to the Lord. And sometimes we say, well, you know, the, 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 uh, all I could do was go to the Lord. Oh, why didn't you go the first time? Like, why didn't you go at the beginning? Like, we're always going to be going to the Lord. So that's so instructive. He goes to the Lord. He cries out to God. It's the best thing we can do when we're feeling in the depths. And it's often the last thing we think of. This is what we need to realize. No matter how deep our valley is, we can always cry out to the throne of heaven for mercy. Doesn't matter how deep or unique we think it is, we can always cry out to the throne of heaven for mercy. So he cries, Hear my pleas for mercy. Not justification, mercy. Mercy, by its very definition, is favor we don't deserve, it's something we can't earn. So the psalmist knows, Look, I need, I need your mercy. That's what I need. I don't have anything to show you. I don't have anything to prove to you. I need your mercy. And knowing we need God's mercy is a very, very good place to be, as we'll see as we move through the psalm. Second thing we see in the psalm is the cause, verses 3 and 4, the cause of his condition. We learn a little bit more about what's going on. In verse 3, there's a shift. I don't know if you noticed it when we read it. Whatever his situation is that caused him to cry out for mercy, he is now aware of a greater problem. Whatever his problems are, he's now aware of his greatest problem, and that is his guilt before God. So he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? You know, we are really good as a people, as human beings, we are really good at marking iniquities. We just love to point out the faults of everyone around us. 
when we see something that's not right with somebody, things that we're not guilty of, of course, we are so happy to point out what other people are doing. You know, you just, all you got to do is go on Twitter, Facebook. You'll see this all over. You know, that person's a liar. That person's a fake. That person's immoral. That person steals. That, that person's self-righteous. That, self, that person's proud. You know, we, we pass on our verdicts with such authority. And Twitter tirades and Facebook comment sections and boycotts and letters to the editor. Here's our problem. We aren't the ones who ultimately mark iniquities. God is. God's the only one who has the authority to do that. God's the only one who has the right to do that. And as we rail against the sins of others, it's funny. Our sins are awfully strangely hidden from us. You ever had that happen where you're, you're, you're talking about someone there like this and like this? Like, and then like a little bit later you realize, oh, wait, I, I'm just like that. That happened to me sometimes with one of my sons. I, I saw this, pri- this pride and anger in him as he was growing up. He was so proud, so angry. And then I realized that, that I was proud and angry. He probably learned it from me. But I didn't see it. I was just marking iniquities. That's, that's what I do as a parent. No, the Lord marks iniquities. And he's the only one who has the right to do it. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that he marks iniquities. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing gets past the Lord. And in remembering that the Lord marks iniquities, the psalmist becomes freshly aware that he needs forgiveness before God. He need, something needs to be done because if the Lord marks iniquities, we are doomed. Who can stand? If the Lord should mark iniquities, who can stand? Because unlike our culture and the way we mark iniquities, God's judgment is sure. His standard is perfection. And his discernment is never wrong. That's how God marks iniquities. So he marks murder and rape and incest and terrorism and drunkenness in homosexuality, whatever, whatever our culture calls it, God marks it as iniquity. Abortion. He keeps a record of every act of racism, viewing pornography, sensuality, anger, slander, gossip, obscene talk. He marks every time. He sees, let's go a little deeper, he sees impatience. He sees what's in our hearts. Envy, covetousness, sloth, idolatry, overeating, self-centeredness, materialism. He sees every time we disobey our parents, get angry at our brothers and sisters, lie to our teachers. God takes note of every time we fail, every time we fail to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Who can stand? After that list, and there's more, who would want to stand up and say, I'm not guilty of any of them? No one. That's what it says in Romans 3.20. At the judgment, every mouth will be stopped. 
and the whole world will be held accountable to God. The end of Psalm 107, the psalmist says, let the upright, the upright rejoice to be glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. That's what we're going to do. All wickedness is going to shut its mouth. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, forgiveness can seem so common to us. And, you know, in a church like Grace Church, you hear about it a lot. We just sang a bunch of songs about it. How much can you hear about forgiveness? Never enough. Never enough. We, we kind of assume God should be forgiving. You know, like one person said, that's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. But the fact that God is forgiving should, 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 call, should blow our minds. It should astound us. It should amaze us. Nothing outside of a direct message from God should lead us to believe that God is forgiving. A couple years ago, I read John Owen's commentary on this psalm, Psalm 130. It's really long. And uh, John Owen was a Puritan who lived in the 17th century, He spends 220 pages on this verse. As I started it, I thought, man, this is going long. I I just flipped through the pages, kept flipping. I thought, man, I counted. It's 220 pages. And I realized that I didn't know as much about forgiveness as I thought I did. Uh, Here's here's, here's some of the thoughts he shared. Forgiveness should come as a total shock to us. Think back to the very beginning. First beings that God created were the angels. Portion of the angels fell, no forgiveness. Second Peter two twenty two four says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. No second chance, no mediator, no savior. They just weren't forgiven. When God created the heavens and the earth and just everything that is. We can look at that and think, well, surely there's a sign here. Nope, nope. God's powerful. He's almighty. He's creative. He's lavish. He's good. But there's nowhere in creation that tells us God is forgiving. In fact, sometimes you might think, well, no, God's unforgiving. Because things happen, seem to happen so randomly. How about Adam and Eve? Well, after Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just stand there and look at each other and say, God's going to be good with us. I mean, we disobeyed his command, but it's going to be okay. I think he's going to understand. They didn't do that. They went and hid. They, they, they were fearful. They were terrified because God said, if the day you eat of this fruit, this, from this tree, you'll die. They didn't expect God to forgive them. The first sign that God would be forgiving is in Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first sign that 
Adam and Eve's disobedience and rejection of God's love, their following after Satan, would somehow be overcome. That God wouldn't just destroy the human race he had created. God said, I'm going I'm to do something here. And what he did at that point, rather than kill Adam and Eve, he killed an animal, some animals and, and clothed Adam and Eve in their skin. That, that was the first clear sign that God would provide a way for us to be forgiven. And he did. As he, as he called Abraham out, the Israelite nation was formed, he gave them a sacrificial system where people brought animals to the priests to be killed in place of them for their sins. So in saying, with you there is forgiveness, the psalmist is looking back to God's promises. It may have been uh, passages from Leviticus chapters 4 through 6 where we read some form of this refrain nine times as they're describing the sacrificial system. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. He says, oh yeah, with you there is forgiveness because there's a sacrificial system. I know there's forgiveness. To what end? Why is there forgiveness? We see that in the second half of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, I read this psalm for years and thought, that's the wrong word. I mean, I didn't want to correct God, but uh, it just seemed like the wrong word. With you there is forgiveness that you should be, what would you put there? Loved. You know, worshipped, honored, thanked. But it's feared. Well, this is the word of God, so that is the right word. Understanding how many our offenses are against God, how much we sinned against God, and understanding how great those offenses are should cause us to fear a God who is so gracious, so compassionate, so loving, so merciful. Forgiveness leads us to want to obey God, not disobey Him. Forgiveness leads us to God, not away from him. Forgiveness leads us to revere God, not disregard him. So yes, forgiveness is so that we might fear him. No, no one says this better, I don't think, than Charles Spurgeon. I mean, you probably hear, use Charles Spurgeon quotes uh, in, in the church, different Sundays. God gave Spurgeon, a preacher in the 19th century in England, just an amazing gift for saying things in a compelling way. This is what he says about, you know, with forgiveness, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. A man, who's in, who, a man who has been forgiven is afraid that he should go on and sin, against, sin, af, sin again after such love and such mercy. He is melted down by the goodness of the Lord. He does not know what to make of it. For a time, he can hardly believe that it is true. I know that when I was converted, I felt at first like Peter, when the great iron gate was opened and the angel brought him out of prison. He knew not what was done to him by the angel, and he thought he saw a vision. He could not believe it to be true that he was really released. So it is with the saved sinner. You are so amazed 
You are so overwhelmed that you are filled with fear at the intense delight of pardon, being half afraid that it cannot really be true that such a wretch as you can have been pardoned and that all your iniquities are blotted out forever. The wondrous grace of God makes you tremble with a holy reverential fear. And if we've never experienced that, if like the the proclamation that you are forgiven doesn't doesn't do something to you, it's never made you fear, here's the problem. Too often we fail to see God as holy enough to hate our sin. And we don't see him as good enough to forgive our sin. We tend to go to one side or the other. And sometimes we'll just go back and forth. You know, we'll be doing our thing, you know, just not even conscious of God and realize, ah, I've done something terrible. And then we'll feel bad. And then we'll think God could never forgive me for this. And eventually we get over that. And then we start caring less about who God is and how holy he is. And we just sin again. And then we'll go back and how could he forgive me for that? That's we just go back and forth. That's not God's way. This verse helps us to see both. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So that's the cause of his condition. Realizing that, he makes a commitment. Verses 5 and 6, he makes a commitment. Psalmist knows in a limited way, in some way, that with God there is forgiveness, but he's still in the depths. What's happening here? What's going on? Well, there's a difference between knowing you're forgiven and feeling the effects of it. There's a distinction. You can know you're forgiven and not be living in the enjoyment of it. He's battling to believe he's forgiven. The thoughts of his sin keep returning. Maybe the consequences of his sin or the sins of others They haven't changed. He's still struggling. So what does he do? Just struggle? No, no, no. He does something. He makes a commitment. Verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. He doesn't just hear those words, with you there's forgiveness, and then just quickly move on. Okay, great. I know I'm forgiven. That's great. He wants to experience forgiveness and the fruit of it and live in the enjoyment of it. That's because knowing you're forgiven doesn't always immediately produce the feelings of forgiveness. I'm a pastor and I regularly talk to Christians who know that Jesus died for their sins, that he hung on the cross in their place, that he is fully paid for their sins as their substitute, but don't have any enjoyment of that. Or it just doesn't seem to matter much because of everything else they're going through right now. Nothing's changing. But here's what we need to realize. Being forgiven by God is more than simply finding out that we're not going to be punished. It's more. It's so much more. It's the restoration of a relationship. That at one time, we did not enjoy because we were objects of wrath. And in his mercy, God has made us objects of his love. 
So the psalmist is waiting for that experience. Whether he's overwhelmed by a circumstance, overwhelmed by a sorrow, or just overwhelmed by a sin and the shame, he's waiting. But he's not just sitting around. It's a specific kind of waiting. It's a focused waiting. The psalmist is waiting for God. He wants to be close to God. I wait for the Lord. This psalm is so God-centered. I wait for the Lord. This is what James Boyce, a pastor, uh, he pastored in Philadelphia for a number of years. He's with the Lord now. This is what he says. He is waiting for God himself. Notice that the forgiveness does not depend on his feeling forgiven. He is forgiven whether he feels it or not because he has asked God for it and God has promised to forgive. Now, he also wants the intimacy with God that should and will follow. And he is waiting for it. Because when we are, when we are near God, Psalm 73 says, Your nearness, O God, is my good. When we are aware of God's nearness, it changes everything. And that nearness comes through knowing he has forgiven us. So he's waiting for the Lord. It's a focused waiting. It's a diligent waiting. He's not just sitting around hoping something will change. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. He's not listening to Oprah trying to get some answers. He's not just going to movies and binging on Netflix to to hoping something will happen. He is putting his hope in God's word. Waiting includes using the means that God has given us to gain a greater assurance of and enjoyment of his forgiveness. He might have been hoping in words like this, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God is revealing his glory and his goodness to Moses. And it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, This is who God is, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And he might have been going back to that word again and again, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. You're slow to anger. You're full of compassion. You're faithful. He's putting his hope in his word. As Christians who live after Jesus has come, we have an even greater promise, or at least a clearer promise in Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You know what that word all means in the Greek? It means all. I like to impress people with my knowledge of the original languages. Waiting isn't laziness. It's diligent. It's purposeful. It's intentional. We meditate on God's promises and all the ways he's provided for us. So that's why we gather here, to remember that God has provided a way of forgiveness. We're putting our hope in his word. That's why we study the Bible, not to just check something off a list. It's so that we can remember that God has forgiven us. We're putting our hope in his words. 
prayer, Bible memorization, fellowship, all of those are ways that we show we are diligently waiting. It's a focused waiting, it's a diligent waiting, and it's an expectant waiting. There's faith involved. There's an expectant waiting. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. My, my soul is waiting. When the Hebrews wanted to emphasize a, a truth, they would just repeat it. They just say it again. More than watchman for the morning. Watchmen may be waiting for the dawn to come, and they would be standing watch, making sure the, the city was safe, and they would just, you know, they'd be off shift when the dawn came. And there was light, and they would just wait for that, wait for that. This guy is waiting for an experience of the Lord's forgiveness more than watchmen wait for the morning. And two things we see in this illustration that he uses that we can learn from. You know, as watchmen are waiting for the sun to rise, first, they can't rush it. They can't make it go quicker. I think waiting is one of the hardest things of the Christian life. You cannot rush it. You know how sometimes when you're waiting for a certain day to come, it might be a wedding day, your wedding, it might be, uh, you know, Christmas, it might be a, a trip, you know. You just can't make that time go faster. You have to wait. Here's the second thing we learned from watchmen waiting for the morning. They are absolutely certain it will come. There's no question. They're not wondering. You know, I've been all over the world, different situations, and had the privilege of, yeah. I've never wondered wherever I am that whether the sun's going to rise. Now, maybe it won't happen here. No, no, it does. It, it does. It comes. They know it will come. The sun will rise. The darkness will lift. Those who wait for the Lord will experience the joys of forgiveness. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. He said, I know I'm forgiven. It's just not the most important thing to me right now. I I just don't feel forgiven. I'm not experiencing the joy that I know should come. I mean, really, every one of us goes through that. Some of us, for a few, you know, few moments, few days, few hours, few days, few weeks. Some of us go through that for years. You know, I think of a situation where, uh, you know, I know a number of, of moms who have lost young children, you know, infants, and, or had stillborn, and uh, that grief doesn't go away. Just, I just got an email the other day from a woman who's uh, two and a half, uh, maybe three-year-old, died. And the email was just simply entitled 11. It had been 11 years since Micah went to be with the Lord. What do you do in that time? You wait for the Lord. And in His Word, you hope. And you remember that in all the sorrow and in all the, the turmoil and all the questions, there is a greater reality that trumps everything. And that is this. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. Or, or it may be more, more direct. It, it, it may be that there are sins you've committed that you just can't get over. You're a Christian, but you live your life with this sense of 
shame and condemnation and guilt. You have voices whispering in your ear. Maybe they're shouting. You're not really forgiven for that. Do you think you have any right to approach God? You shouldn't even be here on a Sunday morning. What are you doing here? Do you think God loves you after what you've done? Wait on the Lord. Put your hope in his word. You will see the goodness of the Lord. You will experience the joy of knowing that God, the holy God, has forgiven you for every sin. And that he's your loving father. And if it doesn't come in your timing, it will certainly come one day and we will enjoy it for all eternity. Put your hope in these words. Lamentations 3, verse 22. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one day that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Those who have forgiveness from God, those who know their sins are fully forgiven, can look forward to the day when sin itself is no more. So that leads to the final C. That's confidence. Verses 7 and 8. The psalmist has a confidence that he didn't have at the start. He doesn't want to keep the good news of forgiveness to himself. He wants everyone to know about it. So he says in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. The Lord's saying, you want to change? Don't hope in your performance. Don't hope in your achievements. Don't hope in your prayers, your tears, your efforts, or changing your circumstances. This is the ground of our encouragement with the Lord is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And that phrase steadfast love, it translates to the Hebrew word chesed. It's a committed, unchanging love that does not depend on the character of the one being loved but on the character of the one doing the loving. God's steadfast love is grounded in his unchanging character. He does not lie. He does not break a promise and he will be faithful forever. So that's what, that's what we're called to remember. With the Lord is steadfast love. It's not dependent on us. It's his steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. It's open to everyone who looks to him for forgiveness. We struggle at times with whether or not God can forgive our sins. Goodness gracious. He wants us to know he has mercy enough for millions. Millions. Of course, we have an advantage that the psalmist didn't have which we haven't given attention to up to this point. We know how God provided that plentiful redemption. We can look back. We can look in his word. We can know that no longer is it through animal sacrifices that can't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. That's not how our sins are forgiven. It's through the life and death and resurrection of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who left his throne to live a perfect life 
to suffer at the hands of those he had created, to bear the sins of all who would ever trust in him, to bear the wrath of God in their place so that we could not only be forgiven but restored in relationship to our Heavenly Father, restored to wholeness. Just uh, between this meeting, uh, previous meeting and this meeting, we spoke, met a, a lady um, who was sharing how she had realized that although her, she had lost her father and grown up with a stepfather, that she had a perfect father who would never leave her or forsake her. That's what we have. That's what Christians have. And we're meant to enjoy that relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew, sin, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Do you know how rich his grace is? It's enough to cover the sins that we are going to commit this afternoon. It's enough to cover all the sins we've committed up until this moment in our lives. It's enough to cover all the the sins that you and I will commit until we die. That's how great His grace is. That's how immeasurable it is. And yet we're going to continue sinning. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. This is how I will pull another John Owen card. Uh, I just love the way he says this. This is the great mystery of the gospel in the blood of Christ. That those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days. That's ridiculous. That's scandalous. How plentiful is God's redemption in Christ? Well, it's plentiful enough to cover my sins, which in, in itself is amazing. It's, um, it's enough to cover the sins of my family, and I have a very big family. It's, it's, it's enough to cover the sins of all who trust in him during my lifetime. And it's enough to cover the sins of a thousand generations before and after us. It's sufficient to cover the sins of anyone who turns to Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And in a group this size, I don't doubt that there's people here who you've not done that. You have not turned to Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are hoping that somehow at the end of your life, you believe in a God, but you're hoping that somehow at the end of your life, you die, you're going to stand before him and say, well, God, my, the good things I did were better than the bad things. You think that's how God's going to weigh it out. He's not going to weigh it out that way. God is perfect. He's awesome in his holiness. He is a righteous judge. And if he wasn't, he would not be God and he wouldn't be a good God. No one would respect a judge who would say, well, you know what, you did all those bad things, but it's okay, come on in. We expect justice. Well, God's just. He's the perfect judge. So he's not going to say, hey, it's okay. It's not okay. Here's the hope for you, and here's the hope for every sinner. It's that Jesus Christ took your sins, and he experienced God's judgment in your place. And if he did that, you can stand before God and say, God, I sinned countless times. I don't even know how many times I've sinned. But your son, Jesus, took every one of them and paid for every one. So I know you love me as much as you love Jesus. (laughs) 
That's ridiculous. So I appeal to you. I plead to you. If that's you, do not walk out of this building without settling that and, and turning away from trusting in your own goodness, your own achievements, your own merits. Trust in the merits and achievements and goodness of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, to save you from sure condemnation. And your life will be changed forever. You talk to anyone, uh, person who brought you or me or Craig, or uh, just love to have that conversation. But if you have found forgiveness through Jesus Christ, you can rejoice, we can rejoice together in this last verse of our psalm. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You know what that's saying? It's not just saying that, that uh, God will redeem us from our sins. It's saying that he will redeem us from the effects of our sins. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sin. He will redeem us from all the trials and difficulties and challenges that have happened because of our sins. Those whose sins are fully forgiven can look forward to the day when sin itself will be no more. And just as the Old Testament Israelites Israelites were waiting for the revelation of the Messiah, we are waiting for the return of the Messiah. When Jesus returns and punishes all wickedness and makes every wrong right. Brothers and sisters, let's live in the good of this. Let's live in the good of this. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. We have no other hope for forgiveness than the shed blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and He is all we need. Trust in Him. Wait for Him. He will never fail. I say that on the authority of the Word of God. Wait for the Lord. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g